again, we appreciate the presence of everyone. We're glad that you're here and hope you can come back and be with us on other occasions, particularly if you're visiting with us. We're glad that you're here. Several months ago, before this pandemic set in, uh, the other elders asked, in light of our theme for the year of bringing others to Christ, and our reminder each week of invite someone this week, if I would go back and revisit and present my home Bible study series, and we'll say more about why that would be presented. This is a home Bible study series that I've put together for myself. I call simply Back to the Bible. And it is, and I want to emphasize this because you may want to do this for yourself. I put this together for me to fit my style and to fit how I present things so that it's easily presented for me. There are many home Bible study series in, put together in video and uh, uh, other forms, but I put this one together because it fits me. Now, you may want to put something together as you try to talk to your friend or neighbor, but a little about what this series is and what I'm going to be doing is presenting it, but I also want to comment along the way why certain things are emphasized uh, through the series so that as we might try to reach out and teach our friends and neighbors. I call this back to the Bible because I am convinced that all of the problems in society and anytime you're sitting down with someone, there's something going on in the news that you can call attention to and point out that that's because we've got away from the Bible. Uh, all problems have come because men got away from the Bible. Uh, much of the chaos in our society right now is because we've got away from Bible principles. Um, we have problems with abortion, we have problems with murder, we have family issues, it's all because we've got away from the Bible. The answer to all problems is to get back to the Bible. Religion has got away from the Bible, we need to get back to the Bible. And so here's a five lesson series, and the first one deals with the Bible is God's Word, the second, applying the Bible. The third, the theme of the Bible. And the fourth is what the Bible says about salvation. And then we talk about the church in the Bible. When I'm talking to someone about trying to commit to a Bible study, I never try to get them to commit to all five studies. My experience has been that if you try to get someone to commit to five studies, would you be interested in this five lesson series once a week for five weeks? They, they block a little bit at, or balk a little bit at committing to five studies. All I ever ask for is, would you commit to one study? I'm not asking you to commit the rest of them, and at the end of the, that lesson, all I will ask you is, would you like to see the next lesson? And if you say, no, I'm not interested, I don't say any more, and I just move on and go on my way. Because I don't want it to be a high-pressure thing. Even when we get later in the series, when we get down to baptism, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Also emphasize, down at the bottom, you probably can't see that, but uh, I emphasize to the person I'm sitting down with that each lesson is always one hour or less. That doesn't mean we're going to go an hour tonight. We're going to go much longer than that. So, no, not really. <laughs> we're, uh, but why do I emphasize that? Because I want them to know that if you're committing to a study, and we're going to have it at 6 o'clock on Tuesday, that if they have plans at 7.30 or 7 or whatever, they can meet those, and I, I've watched the clock, and I'm always out an hour or less. Now, I also emphasize, if you have Bible questions and you want me to stay and, and ask a bunch of questions, then I'll stay for longer. But my material will always be an hour or less, and that's important as you try to set up a home Bible study. 
Now, this is not part of the study, but I want to suggest how you might use this material. Why, why would this being presented to you and why did the other elders? This wasn't my idea. This was theirs. Uh, why would this be valuable to present to, to the congregation in light of our theme? Here's ways that you may use it. What I want to emphasize on point one is that you, uh, you can see what we're studying and why. I'm going to emphasize why did I mention this now and not in the third or fourth lesson. I'll talk about some of that. Wherein you might develop your own material and you might say, I'm going to have a Bible study, but I'm going to arrange it a little bit differently, I think, and I think it'll work better for me. And so you go do that. That'd be great. And that'll be the best material for you to use is stuff you've put together yourself. Secondly, another way is to download this material. This will be available. Uh, these slides will be available here in a couple of hours uh, on our website. If you find the podcast, close to that will be a link where you can find this, these charts. You can download them and, and present them yourself. And then you have the audio to also to go back and review how to develop some thoughts. And so that's one way you can use it. A third way to use it is set up a home Bible study for an in-person study. And you say, I don't know that I can teach a study. That's fine. If you would set up, and, and the greatest success I've had in teaching people is where someone else has set the study up, and I've come in and taught that in their home, not the other person's home, but in your home where your friend comes and we sit down and we study. And they feel comfortable sitting with you. And so we all study together, and I'd be glad to do that. A third way that we can use this material is if you'd set up a home Bible study for a virtual study. We're using Zoom a great deal. A lot of churches, a lot of brethren are, or Facebook Live, uh, or some kind of app. Uh, any of that's fine with me. But, for example, Zoom, we can set up a study where you're involved and the, the candidate is involved or the person we're thinking about, and I'd be glad to present the material and teach that uh, for them. Another way we're going to make this material available, later this week, this very lesson will be presented in a home Bible study setting and will be on YouTube on my channel. I have a channel under my name, and you'll be able to find all five of these when this, lesson, this series is through. And so what you can do is go, go there and watch that video with your friend or send your friend there to watch by themselves, if that's the only way. So there's a number of ways you might be able to make use of this material. So let's get underway. Let's talk about the first lesson in the series. I begin with this called, The Bible is God's Word. If we don't begin with the Bible being God's Word, nothing else is going to make any difference. I'm not ready to sit down with someone and say, here's what the Bible says to do to be saved. Uh, I've done that in earlier years, made that mistake of someone asking, what do I do to be saved? And I tell them and find out they don't believe in inspiration of the Scriptures. And now we've got to backtrack and rebuild the foundation while we try to already have a house above it. That doesn't work too well. So here's the lesson that we present. And I'm going to say a little more and, and go through some points quicker because I'm just morally teaching you how we teach than I am uh, actually teaching the lesson. Here's the lesson on the Bible is God's Word. We start with the resurrection of Christ, Him being raised from the dead, and then we're going to talk about the Bible being God's word and is true, and then we'll talk about inspiration of the scriptures, and that's a lot of, to cover in one lesson. So let's start with the resurrection. We'll come back to that outline later. Why do we begin here with the resurrection? We begin with the resurrection because every sermon in the book of Acts dealt with the resurrection. I don't think you'll find an exception to that. So every time the gospel was preached to non-Christians in the book of Acts, they always focused on the resurrection of Christ. It is the heart and the core of Christianity. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then nothing else we're going to talk about makes any difference. I don't need to talk about baptism, don't need to talk about the church, 
Christian living if he wasn't raised from the dead. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, we'll talk about evidence of that in a moment, then here's some things that are true. God exists. There is a God. Jesus is the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection. And the Word of God is true. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then that tells me the Bible is true. And then that question or that issue of the resurrection becomes the hub of the gospel. It, everything centers around the resurrection of Christ. So that's where I began. If I had one shot at teaching, if, if someone could buy time on television and the whole world see one lesson, you say, what would you preach in that one lesson? It'd be the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It'd have to be. That's where I'd begin. And that's all I'd talk about. Because if I can convince the world of that, then we're getting somewhere with reference to teaching them. So let's talk about evidence of the resurrection. And so we start with the empty tomb. Now I'm going to go quickly in interest of time because I'm stopping and commenting along the way about how we're teaching and why we're doing certain things. And so this is material most of you are familiar with. But we begin with the empty tomb and let's talk about the empty tomb. Let's talk about the tomb itself. The tomb itself was a new tomb according to Luke chapter 23 and John 19. So it's a new tomb. This is not, and the significance of that, there's not a tomb here where a bunch of bodies have been laid so that if someone comes and finds a body in there, oh, he, he's still dead. This is a new tomb. Secondly, it was made of solid rock, Matthew 27 and 60 and Mark 15, 46. So it's not a cave where there may have been an exit route out through the back or through the side or, or various entrances where Jesus could have not really been dead and escaped, but this is hewn out of solid rock. Thirdly, the only opening to the tomb was sealed with a great stone, so great that Mark 16 says three women in their full strength didn't think they could move that stone. That's going to be significant a little bit later. Matthew 27 says the same thing. Now, depending on the person I'm talking to, I may want to stop and camp on some of those verses, or I may go through those quickly. No two lessons or Bible studies are taught alike. Now, when they came to the tomb and found the tomb, here's what they found in the tomb. John 20, verses 6 and 7 says, they found the tomb empty, and the only thing they found lying there was the linen cloth and the face cloth folded together in a place by itself. Your translation may say, a handkerchief. And so here was the face cloth folded together in a place by itself, the linen cloth suggesting the body has been taken away and the wrappings are still there. The tomb is empty. Now the question is, how did the tomb become empty? Mark, uh, Matthew 28 and verse 6, the angels announced the tomb was empty, but the question is, how did the tomb become empty? And there are several different theories. Here's one theory. Some of the modernists have suggested the swoon theory. The swoon theory is that Jesus really didn't die, but he merely fainted. And when he then was placed in the tomb, he regained his strength, and then he pushed his way out and escaped, and therefore there was the claim of the resurrection. Well, that's not going to work too well because Jesus had, was in a very weakened condition. Let's just assume he didn't die. Think of the blood that he shed. His side was pierced and they came out blood and water. He had been scourged previous to this. And if he was in this weakened condition, three women in their full strength, Mark 16 says, could not move the stone, they didn't think. And then Jesus in this weakened condition is going to move the stone? But he was really dead because when the soldiers came to the cross, they found that he was dead already and they did not break his legs, you'll remember. So the swoon theory doesn't work. But here's another theory some have had, and that is the disciples stole the body. 
and that the disciples came and stole the body, and then they took it away claiming the resurrection. Well, they couldn't have stolen the body because um, of the guards that were set around the tomb to keep that from happening. They couldn't have done that. Now, that was the report they gave. They said, while we slept, they took the body. Well, if they were sleeping, how'd they know that's what took place? How'd they know those were the ones who took the body? And so that doesn't work. The disciples came to the tomb expecting the body. Matthew chapter 28, John 20, Mark 16, and other passages as well. Another theory is that the enemies of Jesus stole the body. Well, they had no motive for stealing. You have to have a motive for stealing. What motive would they have had for stealing? Because evidence for them would be for the body to be in the tomb, so that when the claim was made he was raised from the dead, they could have gone back to the tomb and said, here's the body of Jesus, and here is his body. Look at the nail prints in his hand, and look at his side. This is the same one that was crucified. He's still in the tomb. He's not raised from the dead. They had no motive for stealing. The only alternative is that it really did happen because there's no other explanation for the empty tomb. You say, is the empty tomb really that strong of an argument? That was the argument presented in Acts chapter 2, by the way. Go back and read the sermon in Acts 2, and the sermon was about the empty tomb. There was more evidence than that. There were witnesses that were cited. But the empty tomb was the strong evidence that was cited that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. But let's go further. I'm trying to give strong evidence. Now let me stop and footnote here. Why do I, I give such emphasis to this? Maybe that you're person you're studying with already believes in the Bible, would, would you jump and start to, to, with another lesson? I would not. And here's why. Because often those who say they believe in the Bible, and they say they believe in inspiration, really may not understand inspiration of the scriptures, and they may not really have great faith in the resurrection of Christ. And so what I want to do is, even if they think, I think the foundation is there, I want to solidify that foundation before we go any further. And so that's why someone says, I already believe in the resurrection. We don't need to. Uh, that's great. That's great. Let's go over this. Maybe you can help me and add some stuff to this, and we go through it anyway. I just keep plowing through it because I want to give them the foundation. All right, let's go further. Let's talk about the transformation of the disciples. You see, the disciples' hearts were troubled. That is, before the resurrection, the disciples, and before Jesus died, their hearts were troubled at the thought of his going away, John chapter 14. Shortly after that period... They made a sudden change, which is inexplainable if we don't have the resurrection. Let's give Peter as an example. Peter, for example, was a man who prior to the death of Jesus was, didn't have courage enough to say he was with Jesus. In fact, he denied the Lord and said he didn't even know who he was. And yet at the tomb he comes and he's wondering about this. He didn't fully understand the resurrection. Luke chapter 24, 12 says he came and wondered what was this, all the meaning of all of this. But within days of that, notice his boldness. Within days, his boldness was such as in Acts chapter 4, we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard, and we ought to obey God rather than men. So what I'm seeing is a great transformation. Now what happened between the time that he was up here at the tomb, or, or prior to the death, and now this great courage that he had, he saw evidence of the resurrection. Here's a third evidence, the change in the Jews. You see, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, and they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And yet when they heard a sermon about the resurrection, the very ones who had cried crucify him are now saying, what can we do to obey? Many brethren, what shall we do? Now, why'd they change? Why in the world? People who wanted him crucified said, we want to obey him now. What does he want us to do? 
because they had just heard a sermon on the resurrection that supplied three evidences of the resurrection. And they were convinced. So they were convinced and they obeyed. Now that gives me evidence of the resurrection. Now let's go further. Here's another evidence. The witnesses. Witnesses are strong evidence. And you think, you say, well, is, is that really a strong evidence? That was one of the three evidences cited in Acts chapter 2, by the way. Where we are all witnesses, verse 32 says. Let's talk about witnesses. This man named Simon Greenleaf, he wrote the testimony of the evangelist. He practiced law in the 1800s from 1806 to 1853. He was a professor at Harvard School uh, Law uh, law School. His material on witnesses has been used by our court system in the United States for years as the criteria for determining a credible witness. Here's what he says. The credit due to the testimony of the witness depends upon firstly their honesty, secondly their ability, and thirdly their number and the consistency of their testimony. Fourthly, the conformity of their testimony with experience. And fifthly, the coincidence of their testimony with collateral circumstances. The first three we want to focus on, not that the other is not important, but we'll illustrate our point with the first three. What he says is for a witness to be a credible witness, there has to be honesty, ability, and number. So let's suppose that um, there was a wreck out here on the highway. Someone was killed. And so three of us were witnesses to that or four of us, or ten of us, or whatever the case may be. Let's just say ten of us saw the wreck. And so we're called to court as witnesses, and one of the things they want to find out, and they may do some background research on each of us to find out whether or not we are honest people. If we have been people who have been guilty of uh, uh, lying under oath, and we have been guilty of fraud, and we've been guilty of several other things that shows we are dishonest, they can may easily credit, uh, discredit our testimony. But if we're generally recognized all as being honest people, that adds credibility to our witness. Secondly, what about our ability? If, if we are mentally incapacitated and we can, cannot even function in school and we can't function at work, but maybe if we could see here's someone that has credentials, this one has a master's degree and, and this one is a businessman, and this one is uh, running an office somewhere, and this one has written books, and et cetera, on down the line, showing that indeed we are people who have ability that adds to the credentials of our testimony. Thirdly, what about the number? What if of the ten of us, two said one thing, and three said something else, and two or three said something else, and others said, I don't even know? Then that kind of destroys our testimony. But suppose all ten say exactly the same thing. The blue car was speeding and swerving and impacted the red car. We all said the same thing. That's overwhelming evidence, isn't it? All right, let's take that with reference to the uh, resurrection of Christ. Let's talk about the, ev the honesty of the witnesses. They suffered for the cause of Christ. Would they suffer for a cause that they knew and admitted was a lie? That tells you something of their honesty. If you're going to lie, the thing you'll lie about is your own faults. But they told of their own faults. In their own writings, they'd tell about Peter's denial, talk about their ambition that was out of place. They would talk about their failure to understand and comprehend. They're telling their own faults. You see, the motive and the reason for lying can't be found. One of the reasons for lying is fear. Well, they, they testified in the face of death. Greed is another reason for lying. And, but they had nothing to gain by telling the story they told. And ambition is another reason for lying. There was no power to be gained at all. 
So every one of the witnesses of the New Testament that said Jesus was raised from the dead, I saw him raised from the dead, were indeed honest people. Secondly, what about their competency, their ability? Well, they had been with Christ since his baptism, Acts chapter 1. Matthew was a tax collector slash IRS agent, someone who has ability to do some thinking. Luke was a doctor. You see, Peter and Andrew and James and John were businessmen. They weren't just fishermen. That was a business they had. John had the ability to note details. The linen cloth was folded together in a place by itself. You can note details. Paul was highly educated. Had what would be his school at the feet of Gamaliel, which would be much what we would think of as perhaps a master's degree or maybe even some have suggested a doctorate. These indeed were competent people. Well, what about their number and their agreement? Well, they finally reached the point, to borrow a phrase from the enemies of Christ in Luke 22, where you need no further witness. We don't need any more. They all said the same thing. In fact, there was over 500 that claimed that they had seen the Lord. 500 said they saw him at one time, and they all said the same thing, that indeed he was raised from the dead. Closely related to that, let's talk about his appearances, and we cite John 20. What's the case of John 20? You remember in John 20 when Jesus came to his disciples, and they saw the resurrected Lord, but Thomas wasn't there, and Thomas said, I won't believe unless I see it myself. So when Thomas sees it, and sees the nail prints in his hands, and sees his side, he says, my Lord and my God. His appearances, his appearance to Thomas convinced Thomas that indeed this was the one that was raised from the dead. Now, we won't go through every detail, but there's a number of the appearances. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to two other women. He appeared to Simon, uh, who's called Cephas, to the two men on the road to Emmaus, the 11 at one time, over 500 at one time. He appeared to James. He appeared to all of the apostles, including Thomas. He appeared to Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel and James and John and others in John 21, Breakfast by the Sea. The 11 at the Great Commission, or giving of the Great Commission. The 11 at Jerusalem. The 11 at the Mount of Olives. And then last of all, Paul said he was seen of me also. So it's not like there were two or three people who said, I think we saw the Lord. But here's 500 or more, in fact more than 500 people who said, we saw the Lord, we've seen him and we have given evidence that indeed he was raised from the dead. Here's another evidence. Now we're spending a lot of time on evidences because we've got to solidify this concept of Jesus being raised from the dead and we have a foundation now to build on if we do that. Let's talk about the conversion of Saul. There was a man named Lord George Lyttelton, you've heard of him before, in 1747 set out to disprove the resurrection of Christ. He had a friend named Gilbert West and the two of them together said, we're going to disprove Christianity. One said, I'm going to disprove the resurrection. The other says, I'm going to disprove the conversion of Saul. What Saul said happened didn't really happen. Both men in the process of disproving those converted themselves by their studies and became believers. They sought to disprove the resurrection and came to believe in the resurrection itself. Now, Lyttelton said this. He said, the conversion of Saul... The conversion itself was a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine religion. He didn't think so at first, but on his study of the conversion of Saul, he finally came to the conclusion that alone could convince one of the legitimacy of Christianity. Now, here was his four propositions. He set out with these four propositions. Either Paul was an imposter, 
Or he was an enthusiast who had an imagination. He was deceived by others. Or what he said actually really happened. He said, those are the only four possibilities I can think of. And anything that he studied, anybody he talked to, he couldn't think of another possibility. Either Paul was lying about this and knew he was lying, or he really thought it happened, but it didn't happen. And one of the two ways in which he really thought it happened, what may be that he was just imagining it happened, or he was deceived by someone else. And he said, the only other possibility is maybe it really did happen. So he set out to study that. So he said Paul was not an imposter because he had no motive for lying. The motive of money and reputation and power was not uh, there present. This was not placed off in some insecure place or off in some secret place, but on the road to Damascus. The miracles that Paul worked shows that indeed it was true. So he said Paul was not an imposter. He said Paul was not an enthusiast. An enthusiast is looking for something and usually sees what they're looking for, but he wasn't looking for the resurrected Lord. There were other witnesses of that. He had no marks of an enthusiast like the temper or his ignorance or misguided zeal. So that didn't work, he said. He couldn't have been deceived by others because it's impossible to produce a light greater than the noonday sun. He could not produce the voice, and furthermore, he said, others could not cause him to be blind and then later receive his sight. So he said the only option and the only conclusion is that indeed Jesus really was raised from the dead and he really did see the resurrected Lord. Now, let's talk about manuscript evidence. This is one of the strongest evidence that can be cited. What do we mean by manuscript evidence? The original writings of the scriptures, let's say when Paul wrote Romans, the actual pen and paper that he wrote upon, the paper he wrote upon is called an autograph, an original autograph. Not because he signed it, that's just what we call it in textual criticism. And so that's called the original autograph. A copy of that would be called a manuscript. And then a copy of that would be called a manuscript. Now obviously we don't have any original autographs. Nor do we have first generation manuscripts, or even second generation manuscripts. But what we have are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. That's what we have. Now, when you present other historical documents, for example, like Aristotle or, or uh, Tacitus and a host of others, I won't read through all of those, when there are as many as 5 to 10 to 20 or even 30 extant manuscripts, available manuscripts, that is thought to be overwhelming evidence that argues for the authenticity of that document, that it is an historical document. Do you know how many we have concerning the New Testament? We don't have the original, we don't have the first generation or the second generation, but there are over 5,000 manuscripts, more than any other historical document. Now what does that tell me? That tells me that the New Testament is historically do an historical document. This historical document says Jesus was raised from the dead which harmonizes with all the other evidence, and so indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, we spend most of our time in the first study talking about the resurrection, so let's quickly hit some other points, and let's talk about the fact that God is and his word is true. Therefore, I say, I point out to my student in class, therefore, that is, since Jesus was raised from the dead, we have to conclude that God exists. And we can know there is a God. Not just think or feel there's a God. I know because there's evidence that we just cited. 
And we can know there's evidence and we are not taking a blind leap of faith. Some think that faith involves just a blind leap into the dark. I'm just going to jump out there and think that maybe there is a God. I'm believing in God because I know there's evidence of God. And therefore his word is true. If Jesus was raised from the dead, his word is true. Now we can say more, and as you teach someone, if you want to include some of this, you can go further as much as you want. For example, there's agreement with science. And I won't go through a whole list of those, but for example, uh, the Bible said long before man ever discovered the earth was round, the earth is round, Proverbs 8. One I like to illustrate with is Psalm 8 in verse 8. Matthew Fontaine Murray read from Matthew, uh, uh, Psalm 8 in verse 8, had his son to read to him, and it said something about the paths of the sea. And he said, if the Bible says there's paths of the sea, there must be paths of the sea, and I'll find it. And he discovered what are the sailing lanes that is even used by our Navy today that was discovered because he first read it in Psalm 8 in verse 8. And we could go on and on, the agreement of, of Bible and science. Uh, the fulfilled prophecy. Man cannot know, foreknow the future, only God can foreknow the future. And so if there was someone who foretold hundreds of years in advance and it came true exactly, that tells me they were writing by the power of God. That's an argument for inspiration. <coughs> There are over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, that he'd be born of a virgin, very detailed. That he'd be of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, born in Bethlehem. Uh, He'd be taken to Egypt, that he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Not just sold, but for 30 pieces, not 29, not 31, but 30 pieces of silver. And all 300 prophecies came to fulfillment just exactly like the prophet said. And that's just a sampling of the kind of things of prophecy. The Bible is historically accurate. The Bible is not written once upon a time in a far, far away land, but it gives in the third year of King so-and-so, here's what happened. And when we can go back and verify, we find out that's exactly the case. If I told you a story, and I said, um, long, some time ago, several years ago, there was this murder, and, uh, and it was in the city, and da-da-da-da-da, and I tell all about that, you have no way of verifying if I'm telling you the truth. But if I say in uh, 1996, there was a murder on Lane Parkway in Shelbyville, Tennessee, you have a way of verifying that. Do, do your research, and I think you will find there was a murder on Lane Parkway in 1996. Because, see, I've given specifics. That's how the Bible is written. It's historically accurate. And then let's add to that the unity of the writers. The Bible is written over 1,500 years, 40 different writers, three different languages, and hundreds, if not thousands, of subjects, and there's not one single contradiction found in all of the Bible. And then add to that archaeology. That when there is a Bible story and we dig into the ancient ruins, we find it much, just exactly, not much like, but exactly like the, uh, the, the text says. One case in point is the fall of the city of Jericho. The digging at Jericho has discovered that indeed the city fell down flat, the walls fell down flat, it was burned with fire. There was room on the top for, for uh, houses on top of the wall, like Rahab's house, and so indeed it harmonizes with the text. Now, let's get to the third and final section of the lesson and deal with inspiration of the scriptures. Because I want them to know early on that the Bible is inspired so that when we come later in some point and they have a problem with an issue of a text, I don't know that Paul meant what he said, let's go, we have to go back to this. We come back to this principle again and again. So let's talk about the inspiration of the scriptures. When we talk about inspiration, there is such a thing as plenary or plenary inspiration 
What that simply means is that the entire Bible is inspired. There were many of the reformers, or some of the reformers at least, who thought that most of the Bible was inspired, but for example, the book of James was not. Martin Luther argued that. But all of the Bible is inspired. The text says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction, and instruction in righteousness. All of it is given by the breath of God. It's inbreathed by God. That is, God gave the very words that were given. But furthermore, the Bible affirms verbal inspiration. By verbal inspiration, we simply mean every word was inspired. In contrast to the concept of thought inspiration, what's thought inspiration? Where God gives the writer the thought, and then the writer chooses his own words, and he may say it correctly, or he may have overstated that. He may have overemphasized. He, he may have not emphasized. He didn't say it exactly like God intended to, but he just kind of got the general thought. That's thought inspiration. The Bible doesn't affirm that. What the Bible affirms is verbal inspiration. Here's the text. 1 Corinthians 2, 13. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. The words that were used were chosen by the Holy Spirit. If I can convince them of the resurrection... And the Bible indeed is the word of God, and it is inspired, and every word is inspired, then here's some conclusions we have to draw. If the Bible is God's word, then I should accept it as God's word. And I'll usually pause and let them think about that for a little bit. So if, if the Bible is the word of God, which we've shown evidence of in our study, then I would accept it as the word of God, and not the word of men. Secondly, I ought to believe what it says. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. So if the word of God says it, I ought to accept it. So they may have trouble accepting baptism down the line, but I'm laying a foundation here. They may have trouble accepting what it says on divorce and remarriage. We'll talk about that in the fourth lesson, why we may even need to raise that. And so I need to raise the point here, are you going to believe what the word of God says? And thirdly, I should seek to know and understand it. If this is the word of God, I want to know and understand it. I need to know what it says. So if this is the word of God and I, it's confusing to me or I'm not understanding, then I need to seek to understand. I want to get down and find out what does it really say about this question or issue at hand. And then last of all, I should want to do whatever it says. Whatever it says. Because Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now, Usually what I do at this juncture when I'm studying with someone, you do what you wish if you're studying with, with someone, is I ask them if there are any questions so I can clarify. And then I say, okay, this, the material has a second lesson and we'll be talking in that about applying the Bible. Would you like to study that lesson? Not would you like to study for more, would you like to study that lesson? And yeah, yeah, I'd like to study that. Well, then let's do that next Tuesday at 6 o'clock or whatever. And we commit to that, and that's all I'm asking them to commit to now. Is that, that I'm not asking them, are you going to accept what I teach you later? I'm not ready to put pressure on. I'm just laying foundation work. I'm just laying foundation work. That's all we're trying to do at this juncture. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith? and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?